Thank you for tuning into the All Funds Investment Podcast. This episode features two guests. We welcome back Sean Campbell, Managing Director and Head of Distribution for Valiant's Family of Alternative Strategies, as well as Kevin Hertz, CEO of HashQuery and founder of 2140 Networks. In this episode, we dive deep into the business of Bitcoin mining and how they've teamed up to create a debt offering around Bitcoin mining. Just a reminder here that nothing said is legal tax or investment advice. If you'd like to join us in the show, drop us an email, info at altfunds.io, or you can fill out the form below. We're currently filling up the calendar for 2024. If you're watching this video, make sure to stay tuned until the end. We'll be showing you some really cool time-lapse videos of Kevin and their team building the Texas facility. Also some cool overhead drone views. Lastly, check out the links in the description to connect with us as well as Sean and Kevin. Thanks for watching. We hope you enjoy this conversation. I'd love to learn about, from Sean's perspective, we'd love, we'd love to know how you stumbled into this business. And for those that uh, haven't seen your first episode, we're going to include the link down below. Uh, Sean, Sean's with Valiant Finance, so he, he comes from the litigation side. And then we'll also get into Kevin's story. Um, on the Bitcoin mining side, but to kick it off, uh, Sean, this is much different than your previous business end- endeavors, if you will. I uh, would love to learn about how you got into the Bitcoin mining side of the business. Sure, Mike. Sure. So uh, interestingly enough, I started on the traditional capital market side back in 99. And uh, essentially for the first two decades of my career, it was all traditional capital markets, mostly fixed uh, mostly fixed income. So think of your typical intermediate bond funds, your Ginnie Mae, treasuries, all that stuff was my expertise. And I would say coming out of COVID, not only did the landscape change a little bit, but I feel like I changed a little bit from a standpoint of realizing that correlations, for me at least, when I looked at them, all seemed like they were all correlating to one. The minute we started introducing volatility to the markets, everything started going down. So it put me on this quest myself to look and say, there's got to be stuff out there that is truly not correlated to the traditional capital markets. And I think that that's the need that clients have moving forward, even now more than ever, given the fact that if the equity market starts to slide, we've got something to back it up. Ironically enough, that's when I found Valiant. Valiant uh, actually found me through some videos that I had done, and uh, we started talking, had about a six-month courtship, and when I started learning what they were doing, and to your point on litigation finance, the first Reg D offering we put out, and then they also let me know about what we're going to talk about today that was in the hopper, and it's amazing how quickly time flies because we're here, we're live, and uh, you know this was just a thought when I first came over to Valiant. Cool. And then how, how about the Bitcoin mining side? How did, how did this come across your radar? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that Valiant likes to uh, hang their hat on is there's plenty of traditional capital market strategies out there. We don't need another large cap growth fund in the marketplace. We don't need another small cap fund in the marketplace. What we felt we needed was unique products that are innovative and kind of hit that crossroads of of just opportunity innovation. And that's where litigation finance first came from. However, Chris, the CEO, also had a great vision and a partnership with Kevin uh, on the mining side of things. And then it was just putting the brain trust together to try to figure out how you take this great business model and digital mining and package it into a security, if you will, or into an investment that clients might want. For me, and you'll learn this as we go along, the big thing for me is, as we all know, I I know very little. I will represent the public here and say I know little about crypto, just like most of us do out there. However, the one thing I did know was, my gosh, every time I heard somebody say Bitcoin, all I knew was volatility. 
And the minute that we started to engineer a product that was actually taking the volatility out, but still giving you the ability to be in and exposed to crypto was the minute I raised my hand and said, all right, we got to figure out a way to get this out there. Love it. And that brings us to Kevin. So Kevin, I, I'd love to start from the beginning. What's, what's your crypto story? How'd you get into the business and, and bring us up to today? How'd, how'd you get into the mining side of the business? Sure. <clears throat> yeah. Just a um, quick little background on me. Um, I'm a lifelong technologist. Grew up with a, uh, a father who was a computer scientist from the um, 50s and 60s, you know, going through uh, when I was growing up in the 80s, we're soldering, you know, motherboards together in our first Apple IIe's and whatnot. So I got the bug real early, um, went and studied computer engineering and business at University of Southern California um, in Los Angeles. And um, out of that, I, I ran a couple tech companies, um, chief technology officer at a platform as a service company and um, did that for about... 10, 12 years. And, um, one day I was sitting in a meeting and this guy came walking in and just regular, you know, customer meeting, like we have all the time, but he was a big Bitcoin fanatic. And he started telling me about this thing. And I don't know how I hadn't learned about it earlier because I was, I was late to the game. This is like 2018 that I'm really getting into it. And if it was 2009, you know, when this all started, we'd probably be having a different conversation. But um, needless to say, I, I went home and I just, I caught the bug. I stayed up late nights, one after another, reading white papers and digesting source code and all that kind of stuff. And um, when I stumbled upon the concept of proof of work, you know, the original creation of Satoshi, um, that kind of makes the whole Bitcoin ecosystem run. Um, that's when the light bulb really went off and I totally fell down the rabbit hole. I just, I spent weeks, you know, digesting all of this stuff and trying to figure out how it worked. And uh, my mining journey actually started as a hobbyist. So in 2018, I ordered a couple machines off of Amazon of all places. There were Bitmain uh, S9 miners, some old school stuff by today's standards, and plugged them in in my garage at the house that I'm sitting in right now. Had them running here. And uh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen these things in person, but it's like a metal shoebox. This sounds like an F-16 jet taking off and kicks out 200 degree air 24 hours a day. So I had the thing sitting in my garage and that was short lived because like six hours later when my wife came home and saw what I was doing in there, she was like, man, you can't turn our garage into a sauna. This isn't going to work. So uh, I say I bet the family loved that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I had it running long enough to, you know, get my fix and really like realize that, um, these things are real. It's not just like a magic money making machine. It's not a Ponzi. Um, the code is real. It does what it says. And um, from there, I decided, what the heck, let's try turning this into a business. So that was 2018. Over the next few years, brought online um, several data centers, um, several thousand machines up and running, and um, kind of brings us up to today. Uh, I met the Valiant team, and they have a great philosophy on how we can potentially scale this thing and take it to the next level. And so that's what we're working on today. Love it. And uh, so, so tell us more about the binding business. So <clears throat> what, what, what is, uh, what does your current setup look like? Yeah. So um, right now I have uh, two wholly owned facilities, one in Washington state and one in uh, Texas in a town called Denver city. Um, the Washington one is a, is a um, warehouse structure. There's two buildings that hold a couple thousand machines powered off of hundred um, percent hydroelectric power, which is really nice. It's green. Um, zero carbon footprint. The Texas facility is our newest one. We built it from the ground up. It's a container-based facility, if you've ever seen those. Um, we have a mix of immersion-cooled and air-cooled containers. The immersion is the hot stuff on the market right now. It's probably where everything in the mining space will go over the next five to 10 years, um, but it's still relatively new technology in the mining industry. 
And if you're not familiar with immersion, I mean, there's really two ways to cool the machines. You can blow air through them, which is what most people do, um, which is effective. But, you know, as you blow the air through, since you're using ambient air from, from the outside environment, you get dust and other particulate that kind of builds up in there. And then in the summer, depending on where you are, if it gets hot, it becomes hard to cool with hot air. So immersion cooling, you take the machines, you remove the fans, and you literally submerge them in this stuff called dielectric oil. Dielectric oil is a neat substance. It's clear like water, but it has two unique properties. It conducts heat very well, and it conducts no electricity. So you can literally take an entire computer and submerge it in this stuff, and it runs just like it would if it was in the air. And um, the oil, we pump it into a cooling tower that uses uh, air and water. It's just like the radiator on your car. Blows air and, and, and atomized water across these pipes that have the oil in it, reduces the temperature of the oil, and then pumps it right back into the tubs where the machines are. And so that just goes 24 hours a day. And by using this, we have no dust that's building up on the machines. So they stay clean, completely, perfectly clean, um, which makes them run longer. And you can keep them cool pretty much regardless of what the temperature is outside. So we had them running this summer. It's 115 degrees in Texas. And these things are running like they're sitting in Norway or something. They really don't care. That's pretty That's really awesome. cool. Yeah. Does, uh, I guess, would it be more efficient to, to run the, like, does, does it use more energy to cool these during the Texas summer versus Washington or a different place? Good question. It's actually more efficient to run them in the immersion all around. I mean, the only negative, the only drawback to it is that the equipment is more expensive up front. So you're making a bigger upfront investment to get the higher quality um, and the newer technology. But over the long run, it pays for itself easily and uh, in both you know power cost and longevity of the machines. That, that makes sense. I guess from a location perspective, that's I always get asked, you know, where you build it, right? It makes sense. And what doesn't make sense. So, so why Texas? And maybe you talk about why you chose the location that you chose. Yeah, sure. If you're, if you're running air cooled, um, then the climate is a huge consideration, right? Cause you don't want it to be 115 degrees trying to cool the machines using the air. Um, because we're using immersion, that wasn't as big of a concern. So we're actually kind of in the middle of the desert where we are in Texas. It gets hot in the summer and really cold in the winter. Um, the, the main considerations for us are availability of power. Um, there are certain components that we don't want in the power. Like personally, I don't like using a lot of coal power or stuff that's really dirty for the environment. Um, so we look for primarily renewable energy sources. Um, you want a very stable grid. You don't want to be in an area where, you know, you're constantly having brownouts and blackouts and things like that. Um, and of course, you want as low of a cost for your power as possible. And power cost, you know, we usually quantify it in dollars or cents per kilowatt hour. Um, it can range anywhere from, you know, where I am in California, we pay like 35 cents per kilowatt hour. It's impossible to mine profitably in an environment like this. Um, in Texas, we're all the way down in the four cent range per kilowatt hour. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's huge. And you, and you mentioned the hydroelectric. How, how did that uh, come about? Yeah. Um, hydroelectric, I think, is one of the holy grails for mining, if you can find it. Um, the problem is that there are not very many places where they have you know huge quantities of hydroelectric power readily available. So Washington State happens to be one of them. They do have a moratorium, though, on Bitcoin miners coming into the area. So um, I uh, was lucky to get my hands on a facility there because it's almost impossible to build a new one at this point. Yeah. And how did that process go? Do you, how, how do you, how do you buy one of those? 
Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, this was a, um, fortunately for me, I had been hosting my machines. The way I got started was co-locating machines in other people's facilities. That's how most people get started in this business. Um, it's actually relatively rare to own your own facility, um, you know, from the ground up. So I was hosting like everybody else. I had machines at all of the top facilities around the country. Um, one of the facilities that I happened to be hosting in um, they just were looking for a way out, I guess. So we worked out a deal to acquire it. My machines were already located in the facility. So it was a nice turnkey process for me. Um, and that's how we got into it. That's awesome. So I guess from, from where we had to, where we're at today based on the industry. So, so mining as a, as a use case, where do you, you know, what, what, what was the process as you thought about kind of putting this into a product? What, what made sense? Obviously, you chose locations, you chose the infrastructure, um, obviously the, the opportunity. What did you guys go through with that? What's that iterative process? I'm just curious as you chose mining as a mechanism there. So as you know, with Valiant, what we try to do is look for investments that just don't exist or are unique in a way from everything else out there. That's the litigation finance. So for us, when we looked at you know, Kevin's business from a mining perspective and we started to quantify and say, well, wait a minute, we can actually do this as almost private credit and be able to give a cash flow stream. That's really what enticed us. It doesn't, for, for Valiant itself, we look at the industry is not as important as the correlations, one, and the ability to make that commitment that we make as far as being able to offer something like a secured note in a format like that to be able to structure. So it just so happened that, you know, Kevin had been doing this for a while. It was a great idea from our standpoint to say, hey, we can package this into a product and really help scale and grow deep hash as well and then be able to offer this benefit to clients of oh by the way 15 percent a year paid out monthly is pretty good yeah that's great being industry agnostic and being able to just take advantage of whatever the best solution is for your clients that's a great you know great thought process for sure and uh get down to the numbers i'd love to learn about kind of kind of more of the cost of the machine so what, what does it cost to run a, a bitcoin mine or to purchase a bitcoin mining machine the cost of the machines is very volatile. It's about as volatile as the price of Bitcoin, to be honest. And the reason is um, they're typically priced uh, with a ROI period. So, for example, um, if Bitcoin is trading at you know forty six thousand like it is right now, um, the market will calculate roughly a twelve to eighteen month return on investment and then price the machine accordingly. Um, from our perspective, what we like to do, what I like to do with my business, um, I know that this market is extremely volatile, probably more so than almost any other one out there. So I designed the business to have the lowest operational cost possible so that we are still profitable and in a good position, even in the sort of deepest part, trough of the bear market, if you will. What, and, what are uh, some of the steps uh, you, you take for that? Yeah. So... Um, we're very lean in terms of a um, operating business, uh, as few employees on the payroll as possible. Um, we have contractors that manage the facilities remotely. Um, so, so from a personnel perspective, we keep it very lean that way. Um, as I mentioned before, we locate the facilities in areas where the power cost is as low as possible while it's still stable. Um, and that is the largest component um, to the cost of operation is the power. Um, our Texas facility uh, is approved for up to 20 megawatts of power, 
So you can imagine the uh, the bills get pretty big there. And just a, a penny or two difference on the cost makes all the difference in terms of operating the business. Um, those are the two main pieces. The miners, which is what you asked in the beginning, is the, is the other one. Um, we have deep connections with the manufacturers of these machines. We've ordered many thousands of them over the last six years. And so um, typically we're purchasing machines from Bitmain um, or What's Miner, which are probably the two uh, premier um, manufacturers of machines. There's a lot of other ones. Um, I've tested pretty much all of them, but uh, I like to stick with those two because they are the easiest to get repaired um, in the case that you need parts or, or to send them into a facility. Um, and so in terms of buying the machines, uh, we like to buy them in bulk because obviously you get a better deal going that way. Um, and we like to try to time the purchases uh, with certain periods in the market. Um, you really don't want to be buying the machines um, right at the you know peak of the market before the price of Bitcoin is about to turn around. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I know that in the past there's been obviously a backlog or a supply chain challenges, shall we say, of buying or acquiring machines. I'm just curious how that's been looking as of late with, with things. Yeah, in uh, throughout 2021, when we had the big last big bull market period. Um, it became very difficult to source machines. We also had supply chain issues due to the pandemic. So that was kind of a double whammy. Um, when you placed an order towards the end of 2021, you'd expect three to six months lead time before you'd have your parts delivered. Um, for the last year to 18 months, you've been able to acquire equipment uh, you know, with like a one week lead time. So it's, it's almost instant. Um, the market is shifting now because of all of the you know hype that's going on, the price of Bitcoin building up. Um, we're starting to see a little bit more lead times. It's still not nearly as bad as it was in the end of 2021. Um, but I think if the market continues on its current trajectory, it's probably going to get there over the next six months. What is, how do you think about the life cycle of these machines? When you purchase these machines, you know, how long do you expect them to last and you know, do they go obsolete or, you know, is it ever worth, uh, I guess, I guess, how do you, how do you think about that as a whole? Yeah, no, good question. The, the machines themselves, um, tend to run for a really long time. They're, they're very simple machines. I mean, it's a, like I was saying, it's a metal box. It has typically three, um, silicone wafers in there with a whole bunch of chips on them. And then there's, you know, two to four fans and a controller card and a power supply. They design them simple intentionally so that they're field serviceable. So if a power supply goes out or a fan breaks, um, you know, or a controller card breaks, we can swap those out on the spot and keep the machine running the same day. If the hashboards break, it's a little bit more difficult to repair them. So we send those into a repair shop. Um, but all this to say, those machines run almost indefinitely. If you take good care of them, they'll be going for many, many years, at least you know, three to six years, um, possibly quite a bit longer. What tends to really make them obsolete though, is the um, a concept called the difficulty rating of the Bitcoin network. So um, without going too deep on this, um, in order to ensure that one block is mined as close to every 10 minutes as possible, Satoshi created this uh, feature of the Bitcoin source code called difficulty, where the, the network is constantly measuring the hash rate that's applied to it. In other words, the, the number of machines that are plugged in mining and every, roughly every two weeks, the network um, recalculates. It looks at how long it took on average to mine a block. And if it's taking longer than 10 minutes, meaning that um, there are less machines mining, 
then it adjusts the difficulty downwards, which makes it easier for any one particular machine to solve a block and get the block reward. Conversely, which is what normally happens, the blocks start to get shorter and shorter. So they'll go down to you know nine minutes and 58 seconds or nine minutes and 50 seconds. The network will look at that and it will increase the difficulty rating. So as the difficulty goes up, the amount, uh, the, the likelihood of any machine solving the block reward um, goes down, which sort of self-balances um, the entire, you know, keeps equilibrium in the network. Yeah, th thanks for going into detail on that. Um, good, good to know about. I, gu I guess, uh, how do you think about hash rate? Uh, you know, obviously, I, or what, from what I've seen over, over the last, you know, year or so, it's, it's, it seemed to have, have went up a lot, but uh, give us some background on, you know, how it's changed over time and, and maybe how you see it changing in the future. Yeah. Um, in the last year, hash rate has gone up uh, dramatically. I mean, more, more so than any other period in time. It looks like it's starting to level off a little bit now. But again, I mean, it's, it's primarily driven by the profitability of the network. So if the uh, price of Bitcoin goes up dramatically, uh, it entices people to plug more machines in. Um, there's a certain point at which the older machines become profitable again. So for example, if you had a, um, let's say you have a, uh, an S9, like one of the really old uh, Bitmain miners running, um, at pretty much any power cost, those are not profitable now. But if Bitcoin spiked up to $200,000, there's a chance that those machines are profitable again, and there are hundreds of thousands of them out there that could potentially be plugged in. So if the... Uh, if the metrics of the Bitcoin ecosystem improve to a point where machines become profitable, um, hash rate tends to spike very quickly upwards. And the same thing happens the other way around. So we're approaching the halving, as you guys know, in April, um, somewhere around the 20th or 21st. Um, when that happens, the difficulty is going to double overnight, which means that anybody who's even close to a break-even profitability will be you know, pretty far underwater. And at that point, we'd expect that a lot of machines, a lot of hash rate um, is going to come off of the network. That's what's happened to the previous three halving cycles. Um, and so the only reason that wouldn't happen again this time is if uh, the price of Bitcoin um, continues to appreciate dramatically to the point where um, all of the current machines that are online remain profitable um, after the halving happens. No, that's that's interesting. That's so. So, how do you think about that going forward? As 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 you run this this infrastructure, and you you have to then increase your scalability with more machines, more output, or more efficiencies, or of course both. What are your thoughts around that? As you kind of think about that going forward. Yeah, I, I think of the having as a good thing um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, the the original reason that the having is a good thing is because it's what. Um, keeps the the hard cap of 21 million bitcoins in the network, right? That's the the mathematical um, operation that's built in to ensure that that happens over time. Um, but also, you know, the having I think in the past has always triggered a relatively large price appreciation of Bitcoin. If you go back to you know Econ 101 class, right? You have supply and demand. Bitcoin probably has the most fixed supply of anything I've ever seen, right? It's not like U.S. dollars where you can print a trillion of them every hundred days. It's uh, it's very very fixed. Right now, there are literally nine hundred new bitcoins being mined every day, right? And when the halving occurs, that'll get cut to four hundred and fifty new bitcoins every day. So you have this very steady supply curve, and then all of a sudden it cuts in half, 
And the demand, meanwhile, is just continuing to go up and up and up, right? So even if you had level demand and supply gets cut in half, theoretically price goes way up. Uh, I don't think there's any reason that that's not going to happen again this time around. It always has in the past. Sometimes it's you know pretty immediate. Sometimes it takes a few months. But if you look at the chart, the halving really seems to drive the price appreciation cycles of Bitcoin. Absolutely. And this is something I'm going to, I can't speak very deeply on this. So I, I, I think you would get a gist of what I'm saying. But I, uh, what I understand is the fees have increased a lot recently. Um, some people say it's from Bitcoin Oracle's uh, BRC20. Uh, could you talk to us about how uh, the fees, you know, how, how, how does that come out on the mining end? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, when most people look at mining, um, they see the on the surface level, the miners are getting the block reward, right? It's 6.25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes is the current block reward. Um, traditionally, all the way up until just, you know, about six months ago, um, the transaction fees, which are the other component of how miners make money, um, they made up about 1% of the uh, total fees that the miners were collecting. Right now, the transaction fees are making up about 15%. And over the last few months, they've had periods where they where they've spiked over 50% of the uh, revenue that the miners are collecting. So transaction fees are really important. And for those that don't know, transaction fee is, for example, if I go to send a Bitcoin to Sean, I can specify what I want to pay for that transaction to go through. I can pay a penny, or I could pay $100, the miners are earning that fee. And so the miners are incentivized to process the highest fee transaction first and the lowest fee transaction last, right? So if you are in a rush and you really need your Bitcoin payment to go through quickly, you put in a high transaction fee. Now, you mentioned ordinals, right? Ordinals or the BRC20 format are essentially a way to create NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, the Bitcoin blockchain wasn't really intended for this. Um, and so there is a ongoing argument in the Bitcoin core dev community right now about whether or not it should continue. Um, personally, I don't think they have the ability to stop it because in order to make a code change, they, it requires, you know, a majority vote of the miners. And currently the miners are having a heyday because of this, um, activity that's going on. But essentially what happened is, um, a very creative developer came up with a way to mint NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain. The Bitcoin blockchain um, has a very low number of transactions that it can um, sustain in every 10 minute block. Um, some people think this is a bug. I think it's actually a feature because I think Bitcoin was designed to be slow and steady and very secure. But whatever you think of it, um, because there are only so many transactions that can go through in a fixed time period, people who are trying to mint these ordinals, um, they're in a huge rush to get it done, right? They want to get theirs in first. And they're used to paying fees uh, akin to what you pay on Ethereum um, or one of those networks where you're typically minting NFTs, which traditionally have been much higher than Bitcoin fees. So they're happy to pay, you know, $100, $150, $200 to get their NFT minted on the Bitcoin blockchain. Well, when you have tens of thousands of people trying to do this at the same time, and they're all trying to squeeze it into a 10 minute block, it drives the fees way up there. Whether you're minting an ordinal or just trying to get your Bitcoin payment to go through, if you want it through in the next block, now you have to pay a lot more than you used to. 
And so it's a really important concept in terms of mining, because like I mentioned before, the miners are, are getting paid via the block reward and the transaction fees. If the transaction fees become the majority of the reward, then the halving doesn't really have as big of an impact on the miners. They'll continue to mine just to earn the transaction fees. And this is, I believe, part of the original intent of the design of Bitcoin is that over time, as the block reward gets really, really small, like we go two, three halvings out from now, it's going to be, you know, minuscule compared to where it is today. There needs to be an incentive to keep the miners mining. And I believe that's where the transaction fees come in. Yeah, it was helpful. When it comes to your Texas uh, mining rig, these are near power plants. Could you talk to us about that and, you know, how you guys kind of work with uh, the power plants to, to make the whole grid a little bit more efficient? Yeah, one of the little known um, intricacies of Bitcoin mining um, revolves around um, the uh, availability of power. So um, most people don't realize this, but most of the United States actually produces more power than it needs, right? Um, most people believe that we have a power shortage, but actually we have a power surplus. The problem is that it's very expensive and difficult to transmit power over long distances. So typically you end up with a huge amount of power in this area that's close to a power plant. And then you have a really small amount of area, a really small amount of power in this other area that's far away from the power plant. Um, the power plants at the same time, it's very difficult for them to ramp up and down the amount of power that they're producing, right? They like to stay very steady. And so they, um, as opposed to uh, what a lot of people believe, the power generation companies actually really, really like working with Bitcoin miners because we have a type of power that they refer to as interruptible load. And what that means is we can actually shut off our power usage on a moment's notice, and it has no effect on the equipment that we're running. We stop producing revenue while that happens, but it doesn't harm anything. If you're running a hospital or a factory or something like that, and you shut the power off, you have all sorts of issues. So they are not interruptible load. So when we go um, looking for a source of power, um, we one of the first things that we look for is if they offer interruptible load credits or special rate plans designed for interruptible load. And we'll agree, they call it curtailment. So we will agree to curtail our usage for a certain number of minutes per year or a certain percentage of the, of the time in exchange for um, very low rates and additional credits. And so that's one of the main reasons um, that we are where we are in Texas is because of this. So we will get a curtailment order that comes through. It could be any random time of day. The last one we had was just a couple days ago. They send an automated message through to our systems. Our systems communicate with the servers and put them all into sleep mode. It takes about 30 seconds. And we'll go from you know, 15 megawatts of usage down to 300 kilowatts of usage in a minute. Um, and then as soon as their curtailment is over, uh, the power comes right back on. And typically these only last about 10 minutes. That's very interesting. Yeah. Appreciate the explanation there. Sure thing. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, so, uh, Sean, let's bring all this full circle. So, uh, Kevin, thank you for walking us through the mining side. I think that th this is really cool what you guys are putting together. Um, Sean, talk to us about the offering. How does your offering work and how do you guys structure this? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, so similar to litigation finance, we structured as a Reg D offering, accredited investors only. But uh, one of the things that Valiant likes to do, as you guys know from the from our previous discussions, is we love private debt. So we love to structure our stuff as secured notes, and that's exactly what we did here. You know, the interesting thing about Bitcoin mining for us was to a guy like myself that knows that Bitcoin just goes up and down and to the common American that says, no, this is volatile, it's black magic. The one thing about the mining side that was alluring is it's a formula. It's a math formula. You turn the computer on based on being in the mining pool, you know exactly how much money that machine is going to make, which makes structuring a uh, deal as such as this extremely easy to do. So we actually put the deal together as a 48-month note. So what that means is an accredited investor comes in, initial investment has to be $50,000. They will get a 15% a year in fund one, and I'll explain the two different funds in a second. They'll get a 15% a year return. That'll be paid out monthly, except for year one. Year one, we have a blackout period in the first quarter. So for the first three months, the client will not receive their monthly coupon, but they'll get a catch-up rate for the final nine months of that year one to get them to 15%. Years, uh, years two through four, very simple. Just take 15%, divide it by 12. You know exactly down to the penny what you're going to be receiving as far as cash flow. And then obviously on the 48th month, you're going to get your last coupon payment plus your principal back. Uh, so that's a 48-month secured note deal on fund number one. We felt this was important for folks that were just looking to be able to round out a cash flow basis. I mean, I would love to think that we could all live off of Social Security when we get older. I know I'm not going to be able to. Uh, so that being said, this is just a way to be able to generate an uncorrelated cash flow that's predictable. And take what has been known as a volatile asset class, I guess we could say asset class now that the ETF went, uh, went official today, and take this volatile asset class and make it predictable. And I think that's, that's what really allured us in Valiant. I'll, I'll share fund number two with you because this is the one that I did. Uh, so my initial investment was in the fund two, one, because I believe in Kevin and his team. Uh, but what we did was we made it a little bit sexier, if you will. It's an unsecured note, but it's still a 48-month term. But what it is, is it's participating in 50% of the net cash flows of Depash. So of the miner, when my machines get turned on, I will be participating in 50% of the net cash flows. Why that's important? At least for me, after every report I've seen that Bitcoin's going to go from anywhere from 100,000 to a half a million, obviously the more Bitcoin goes up, the more cash flow I'll be receiving over the course of that four years. So clients can play it either way. If they're bullish on crypto or Bitcoin in particular, I would go with fund two. If you're looking for a nice healthy return, 15%, fund one's the way to go. Uh, the, the one question I've gotten on fund one is, is exactly that. Well, wait a minute. So what if Bitcoin's at 30,000? No, 15%. But what if it's at a half a million? You're still getting 15%. So it all depends on what what way you want your cash flow to look. But uh, we've secured them both as a 48-month term, paid out monthly, except for the first three months on a quarterly blackout. Does that make sense? Those are those are both Reg D products, Reg D offerings. Is that correct? Yep, both Reg Ds. Yeah. Okay, great. On the first uh, fund you mentioned, there's a blackout period in that first quarter. That's just probably just for a ramp up, getting things set up, deploying the capital, 
things go. Yeah, it's exactly right. And that's for that's for both. Let me be clear, Skylar. That's for both. There's a quarterly blackout the first three months, and that's essentially exactly what you said. We got to go out, get the ASICs, flip them on, to turn the switch, get everything ready. So uh, yeah, it's it typically sixty to ninety days before we can actually turn that uh, on button and let Kevin do his magic. That makes sense. That definitely makes sense. I guess if if anybody wanted to get out early in that first forty eight months, whatever. I don't know why they would want to getting a consistent return, but uh, I'm just curious what what the terms are on that. So uh, there, as it stands now, very similar to litigation finance. It's something we're talking about. So uh, there will be a secondary market, or there will be the ability to get out at some point. The way that I explain it now is: listen, you got to be comfortable with locking at least your principal up for the 48 months and taking that cash flow. But I can guarantee you, the way that we think at Valiant, we're always thinking ahead on these things. There will be a secondary market. It's going to come at a penalty, as as you guys know. We talked about that on litigation finance as well. So not sure what the haircut of principal would be if you're looking to get out early, if you will, but there will be an early withdrawal fee. But as it stands right now, I'd like every client to know, hey, you're getting a monthly cash flow, a pretty healthy one. You've got to be comfortable with the principal being locked up for 48 months. Yeah, it makes 100% sense as far as that goes. You know, but yeah, and it, it makes sense too on the other side as well, but that's uh... – the fact that you do offer, you know, a secondary market is definitely uh, interesting too for people. For whatever reason, um, if that happens, you have that as an option, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So things come up. Uh, tell us about the uh, in terms of what you guys are doing with the capital. So, you know, I give you this capital for your funds. Uh, how, how are you guys putting this to work? Great question, Kevin. You want to you want to handle that? Sure. It's it's pretty much going straight into. Um, purchasing the equipment. So we've got container infrastructure, um, transformers, high voltage lines, and most of it goes straight towards buying ASICs. That's awesome. Cool. And, and one question I had regarding the, the container side of things, you mentioned that uh, earlier. Why containers? Just that, that gets brought up to my side too for, for a few different reasons, but I'm just curious what your, what your take is on that. Yeah, there's a bunch of advantages to the containers. Um, I'd say, first of all, they're portable. Right, so these containers—they're being built in China. Um, they get shipped over on a boat. They get loaded onto a flatbed truck and delivered to the site, and then a crane plops them on the ground. Um, if we ever need to move them for some reason, just do the process in reverse. Right, pick them up, move to another location. Um, secondly, they are essentially bomb shelters. Um, these are—they're forty-foot shipping containers. They're designed to be transported on a boat going through the ocean for months at a time and keep, you know, Lamborghinis safe inside. So they're, uh, in terms of building a structure, it's about as strong of a structure as you can put together. Um, and then cost component, um, they are far cheaper to deploy than building a structure. So we could build a warehouse. Um, it has the opposite problem, uh, you know, to, to the benefits um, that I was going over for the containers. You can't move it. Um, it's definitely not as strong. Uh, it takes longer to set up and build, and it's more expensive. So I think all around, um, the uh, the containers are the way to go. That's awesome. It makes a lot of sense. You obviously, you obviously see a lot of the tiny home communities with, with those uh, containers in Texas. Why not uh, uh, mining rigs, right? That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks cool. I mean, if you see a picture yeah. of it, we've got all these containers lined up in a row, and we've even started stacking them too high. So uh, at the end of the facility, we've got these double stacks in it. it. People who drive by out there have no idea what they're looking at because it's, it's in the middle of the desert. All that's around it is oil pump jacks and then this crazy thing that looks like it belongs on Mars. 
That's crazy. How, how many how many uh, rigs do you have in a container? I'm just curious. How many can fit in? One container? The immersion containers hold 240, and the air cooled containers hold 336. Wow. Um, obviously, the immersion uh, is the way to go, right? From your what you mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, a little bit, a little bit more time consuming and expensive in the beginning, but it pays for itself relatively quickly. Um, the you know you hold less machines in the immersion container, so it's a little bit less efficient in terms of machine density. But one of the benefits uh, that I didn't mention earlier is because of how efficient the cooling is, you can actually overclock the machines. So if they come at a standard, let's say a hundred terahash you can typically run them at up to about 120, about 20% overclock. Consumes a little bit more electricity, but the main reason that you don't do that in air-cooled environments is because they get hotter. So since we're able to keep them operating you know, at the proper temperature, we can run them uh, faster than they come you know, from the factory. And Skylar, I uh, spoke at a technology conference in Vegas last, uh, gosh, I think it was August, and we actually, I'll have to send it to both of you. We have a time-lapse uh, little... Uh, video of Kevin's operation, which was just a sand pit. Uh, and over a 30 second time period, you just see it start to pop up and sprout out. I'll send it to you guys. It's pretty interesting just to see it. Yeah, it'd be great to see. Yeah, I think uh, we broke really a cool. record on this one. I, I really wanted to prove to myself that we could, you know, build this from literally from the ground up. So in, um, let's see, the end of June, uh, we acquired the property in Texas. And before the end of July, we had machines online and hashing. So it went from dirt to a functioning data center in less than 30 days. That's really cool. Almost even wow. like a time progression video, right? Start to finish, you can see that. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty <laughs> cool. That's what Sean's got. And uh, and we're running uh, the data um, off of Starlink satellites right now. So um, really cool that we didn't need to you know run any physical infrastructure out there since it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, so that's, that's actually a really neat uh, piece of this that makes it even more portable. Super cool. That is. Um, last thing on my mind is the risk. So talk, talk to us about the risk of the investment. What if things go sour, Bitcoin drops to $10,000, uh, you know, while the hash rate continues to increase? How, how do you guys think about the risk end of this? Yeah, Kev, I'll start and then I'll let you finish up because this is something Kevin sure, and I sure. talk about every single day. So, you know, for a guy like me being traditional capital markets, I always like to know where the bogey is. So because Kevin runs this business so lean, as you can imagine, we're stripped down to the point for a reason. If we're going to strip down to this point, we want to do it because we want to make sure that we're keeping the level of risk as low as possible. So the thing that I've tried to peg Kevin on, and I've, I've, I've given up because I know it's impossible, is, Kev, tell me the number on Bitcoin where we can get to before we're calling our investors saying, I can't pay 15% anymore. I got to cut it to 12 or I got to cut it to 10. And and to Kevin's credit, the reason we can't give that number is because there's too many variables. Uh, not only is Bitcoin going to drop and have to drop precipitously from where it is today, but we'd also have to see the difficulty level drop. So it, it's hard to know where that difficulty level will be at whatever level Bitcoin is. I can't even give you a ballpark. Uh, I know it's I, what I can say is it's much lower than where it's running today. And I know Kevin can speak to this. We just went through what a lot called the Bitcoin winter. Uh, and essentially, he was running extremely profitable all the way through that. So I'll be quiet. I'll hand it over to the more technical guy. But I always try to peg him on it. Where's Bitcoin got to be before this doesn't work? Yep. So, you know, as Sean mentioned, um, 
the it, it's hard to put your finger on the exact number because there's variables here that are always changing. Um, what I can say is that you know in the deepest pits of the last bear market, we were still operating at about a fifty percent profit margin. So uh, it's very healthy, and that's that's the reason that I mentioned earlier we've designed this operation to run as efficiently as possible. Um, there's another piece of the puzzle though that most people don't realize. So um, we were talking about difficulty earlier, right? As the price of Bitcoin drops, more and more miners become unprofitable. They unplug their machines. There's basically nobody out there that's running these things as a charity, right? I mean, there are, I have heard of some people heating their basements with them. That's fantastic. Um, but there's no big organizations that are running tons of Bitcoin miners to lose money. So as soon as they get to the point where it becomes unprofitable, they unplug. The hash rate then on the network goes down. Difficulty adjusts downward. So what that results in is the miners that are operating at the lowest cost basis are the ones that can stay online the longest. And when the ones that are operating at a higher cost basis are forced to unplug, it actually benefits those of us that can stay online um, through that sort of crypto winter period. So I've seen this happen several times. I've been through multiple halvings, um, been doing this for a while. And that's the reason that we've set up the business like that. So we feel that um, we'll be one of the last men standing, I guess is a good way to put it. There, there are a couple companies out there that um, they list tiers of cost level for, for Bitcoin miners. Um, we are uh, in the lowest tier above the people who get free power. And there are some of those out there, um, probably not in the U.S., in various countries, gray market power and whatnot. But for those of us that are actually paying for it, we're in the bottom tier. Wow. So that's interesting. So it sounds like you have a pretty good infrastructure. You've really, you know, you're, you're very nimble. You set things up in a way that makes sense uh, for what you're looking to do. I'm just curious, as you guys grow, as you deploy capital from investors, right? You know, as you look into acquire new rigs, how many, is there a point where you're like, hey, I want to be at this level of AUM to where we want to kind of stay at a certain number of inventory of uh, right, machines? Right, capacity. Yeah. Capacity, yeah. I'm just curious if there's a capacity constraints at a certain level or no. Um, not really. It's a little bit of a complicated question. Um, yeah. but at, at the, the simplest level, um, we are poised to scale dramatically from where we are now. So the, the current site in Texas is about 50% capacity. We'll probably have that full in the next 90 days. Um, we have another site that's about 20 miles away, less than that, 10 miles away, um, where we're building a mirror image of the same thing. And we have additional sites that we're looking at already. Um, some really cool prospects. We have one that's a, a solar farm. It's a hundred megawatt solar farm. And they've already agreed to sell up to a hundred percent of the power that they're generating directly to us behind the meter, which means that it wouldn't even go through an actual power company, just direct from the solar panels to us. Um, we have another one we're looking at that's with a wind farm, which is very similar. Great deals because it's, you know, carbon free uh, energy production. And um, they love us because we're willing to pay substantially more than the power company is for the power that they're generating. Um, and even though we're paying more than the power company would, it's still substantially less than we could buy power anywhere else. So it's a great win-win scenario. And um, these, you know, 100 megawatt facility will allow us to deploy tens of thousands of machines. So we can continue growing uh, well into the future. There's, there's really no limit right now. That's amazing. I'm, I'm just curious too, with, with investors, obviously, there's a lot of questions that we covered a lot today, but uh, anything else that they maybe are asking you guys that you didn't anticipate or it was kind of a unique question as we kind of 
where things are at with with uh, the current market from from an investor point of view. Obviously, we're going to ask about just the infrastructure, right? They're going to get the yield. It makes sense. But anything else that's come up uh, just from a infrastructure point of view that that they ask about as you're having these conversations with LPs coming in the door? Uh, that's a great question, Skylar. I, I think the one for me that I should have figured was going to be asked the most was the economics. How much are you paying for power? But Kev, are there any that, that you remember or recall that was kind of like a curveball or out of left field? I love the fact that somebody brought up to us, well, if it doesn't work in Texas, you could just pick these up and move them to El Salvador. They're using Bitcoin as their monetary uh, right, you know, right. staple anyway. But uh, not, nothing else that I could think of. How about you, Kev? Not really. I mean, there's one, one piece that we didn't touch on earlier that might be important for people to understand is, um, and I get asked this a lot, is, you know, how do you know how much money you're going to make, right? Because the, the, like the underpinnings of Bitcoin mining are based on luck, right? You, if you're the lucky miner to win the block reward, then you get 6.25 Bitcoins. But um, what most people don't realize is that, you know, close to 10 years ago, um, it became so unlikely that any one of your machines was going to win the block reward that you're probably better off just putting the money into lottery tickets right because it's literally mathematically more likely that you would win the lottery than you would have one machine that's going to win the block reward that's that's a true statement today so what they did is similar to if you've ever been in an office with a bunch of people and you pool all your money together to buy more lottery tickets right everybody puts in 50 bucks and then if anyone wins you split it equally the pools, the, the mining pools operate off of the same philosophy. So um, everybody contributes their hash rate to a mining pool. The mining pools have grown so huge that at this point, it's just statistics to them. They know that every certain number of minutes, they're going to win a block and it gets distributed evenly. For me, when I saw that um, you know five, six years ago, the mining pools had already started prepaying the miners as an incentive to get them to join their pool. That's when I realized that this is a business, right? There's no more luck involved. I know that for every petahash that I contribute to the mining pool, I am going to get paid a fixed amount every single block, every 10 minutes all day long. And so that's what makes it math. There's really no luck involved anymore. We can build a spreadsheet, calculate exactly how much we're going to make over time, um, and it plays out like clockwork day in and day out. That's great. That's a great insight there. Yeah, really cool. Uh, you opened up the door for some more questions, but I'll, I'll save those for next time. <laughs> <laughs> cool. This no, is really definitely. cool. Yeah, yeah. great insight. Kevin, Sean, really appreciate this. Best of luck with the funds. Where can people go to connect with you? Yeah, so valiantfinance.net. Valiantfinance.net is where you'll find not only litigation finance, but our digital mining fund one and two. Uh, I know you guys have my contact info as well, Mike. So feel free. People can catch me on your site by uh, just uh, logging on there or shoot me an email. I'll be happy to talk to anybody. You know, I mean, what, what Kevin brought up at the end, just to put the nail in the coffin, if you will, is so important that that's what excited us at Valiant was this wasn't locked. This was a math equation, which makes something with fixed income, private credit, if you will, very easy to manage then and uh, get our arms around. So if you ever want part two, by all means, Mike, just hit me up. We'd be happy to come on if you got some more questions. Well, thank you guys so much. Really appreciate the time. This is a lot of fun. This was a great, guys. Thanks for having Thanks us. For having us. Appreciate it. Thanks again for watching. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to like and subscribe for more information like this. 
And once again, we're filling up our calendar for 2024. So if you're interested in joining us in the show, drop us an email, info at allfunds.io. Check out everything in the description below to connect with us.